You're listening to the Today in Manufacturing podcast. Hi, I'm David Manti, and welcome to a new episode of the Today in Manufacturing podcast. With me today are Jeff Ranke and Anna Wells. We're the editors of Manufacturing.net and Industrial Equipment News, with about 15 years experience working in the manufacturing industry. Each week, we take the top five stories on our websites and discuss the impacts they have on the industry going forward. Before we get started, please make sure to like, share, and subscribe to the podcast. You can also help us out by leaving a positive review on Apple Podcasts or whatever platform you use. Finally, to email the podcast, you can reach us at Jeff, Anna, or David at IEN.com with email the podcast in the subject line. Anna, how are you doing this week? Doing great. How about you? I'm uh, pumped up this week, uh, getting ready to take the next week off. <laughs> Always, though, pumped up. Yeah, yeah, no. It's like, I'm a 10.5 today, not a 10.6. Uh, Jeff, how are you doing? Good, and I see you even got water as opposed to coffee. I know. So, I, I stopped man. coffee, and somehow I still went up. <laughs> no, <laughs> it's good. Racing heart rates is good. Our uh, first story this week, IBM says semiconductor maker owes $2.5 billion dollars. Tech giant IBM wants Global Foundries, a major semiconductor manufacturer, to pay $2.5 billion for violating the terms of a 2014 deal. Global Foundries says the timing is highly suspect. Six years ago, Global Foundries bought IBM's chip business for $1.5 billion. IBM says Global Foundries agreed to continue making chips for IBM as part of the deal. But in 2018, Global Foundries abandoned advanced chip making technology due to outrageous outrageous R&D costs. IBM worked with Samsung for its chips for more than two years before it sent a letter to Global Foundries in April alleging contract violations. Global Foundries questioned the timing of the lawsuit, which comes just as the chipmaker prepares to move forward with an initial public offering that could value the company at some $30 billion. Jeff, is the timing highly suspect? I mean, suspect kind of offers some sort of like criminal or unmoral uh, type of thing here. I don't think it's suspect. It's, it's it eyebrow-raising. Yeah, I mean, it, it does make sense. You know, looking at some things, IBM, although they're still a huge $120 billion company, I mean, they are coming off some rough times. Um, earlier this year, they reported their seventh consecutive annual sales decline, um, decline in adjusted earnings, and their eighth annual sales drop. I'm sorry, seven consecutive years of earnings decline, eighth year of sales decline. So they're struggling a little bit. So if they can look to recoup $2.5 billion, that might help a little bit. Mm-hmm. Um, can definitely understand that. I think looking at this from from Global Foundry's perspective, I think being a contract manufacturer, even in something as complex as semiconductor production, they basically looked at this and three years ago they said, this is no longer a service we're going to do. It does not make sense for our business model. We cannot continue to keep investing this money. We're not doing it anymore. Mm-hmm. To them, that must have really concluded things. They didn't hear from IBM for three years, so they thought things were cool. Yeah. Um, so IBM has a case here, but yeah. yeah, the timing, I mean, it fits in with a lot of other stuff that's going on right now. Yeah. Anna, what are your thoughts on it? Was it just, uh, should have it just been cool after two years? Yeah, it kind of makes me nervous now that I could still be subject to like phone calls or something about something I said a long time ago. Like, mm. hey, you know what? I didn't think that was funny. Oh, it's all on YouTube yeah. forever. So we'll get those not two years later, but 30 years later. I am still mad. Ms. Wells. <laughs> um, I, I thought Jeff brought up some good points about IBM's. Um, they've had kind of a, a troubled, um, or maybe not troubled, but like very kind of stagnant last few years. Um, their CEO, Ginny Rometty, 
Um, she stepped down last year, so they have a new CEO. So it's possible that um, he is probably being charged with like appeasing some of these investors who are really, you know, putting them on blast for like the last few years of not having really any growth um, mm. and sometimes losses. Um, he, Arvind Krishna is his name, the new CEO. He's apparently being focused on accelerating their transition from things like hardware infrastructure um, and more towards like hybrid cloud and emerging technologies like AI. Um, but guess what? They still need chips. Mm -hmm. So I think like divesting the semiconductor business uh, way back when they did still aligns with their strategy. Um, however, these are kind of the risks that you face when you take a process that's in-house and you outsource it. So unfortunately, and um, IBM is kind of, and I don't know what the terms of their agreement were, so mm -hmm. I can't speak to that, um, whether Global Foundries is like really pulling the rug out from them or not, I don't know. Mm -hmm. But you do kind of risk, you can't like force this company to stay in business forever. You can't force them to produce this product line forever, I don't think, from a legal standpoint, but I don't know. Yeah, it's, it's interesting because IBM is still, they still design the mm -hmm. chips, they just don't actually produce them. Mm -hmm. So they are in a tough spot, especially with all the supply chain issues that are going on right now. They're designing products like you talked about with all these advanced technologies that need what they're designing. They just can't find somebody to make it right now. Mm -hmm. um, and they did funnel, what, billion and a half dollars into uh, into this company? Yeah, yeah. 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 So. Do you think this deal would happen now after everything that we've seen with the pandemic, everything that we've seen with supply chain disruption, does this deal happen now or do they decide to keep it in house now that they've seen not this particular issue, but like everything that like, do you think people will stop making selling off pieces of their company that don't necessarily align with their uh, go forward strategy, but are still a critical part of their business? I don't think you can look at like semiconductors in that market in a vacuum because what's mm -hmm. also changed over the years and continues to is the pressure from for public companies to continue to turn a profit. Mm -hmm. And so if this, they were called it like a commoditized, um, I don't remember what the term they used, but uh, commoditized assets that they were trying to divest. Um, and, you know, if it's not helping to build their business and not helping to fuel their profitability, then they are going to be pressured to pull these types of, uh, you know, business units out of the overall company and move forward another way. So, I don't know. I see your point, mm -hmm. but at the same time, I think like if it's it's a loss leader or something, then then yes, it would happen. Okay, it's my thought. Okay. But Jeff, yeah, I mean, as we'll talk about with another story further down, it's expensive to make stuff, mm -hmm. <laughs> especially yeah. when it's complex stuff like uh, like semiconductor chips. So, I understand where IBM was coming from. They still have the the intellectual capabilities. They just don't want to have to physically produce it. I think that's yeah. always going to be a popular source to go when you're looking to streamline and, and, and improve your revenue and improve your profit margins. Mm -hmm. so. But I mean, as these things keep coming up where it doesn't work out so hot for the other person, I mean, maybe not so much anymore. Well, and, and like Anna said, this is, this is unique. Mm -hmm. This is, especially now with everything that's going on, I wonder if Global Foundries could go back to 2018. Would they have made those investments? Because now maybe they would be able to capitalize on a greater mm -hmm. um, market potential. You know they're already going to be valued at thirty billion. I'm sure a lot of that comes from the fact that they've got a lot of people knocking at their door right now, yeah. and it isn't for as high level stuff as what IBM is looking for. It's looking for some of the more I hate to use the word term basic yeah. when we're talking about computer chips, but more standard type product offerings that they can probably create and manufacture. 
at a greater margin for them. So the attorneys for Global Foundries alleged that IBM was simply seeking a, quote, quick payday. But after we posted the story, an IBM company spokesperson reached out to us with the following statement. IBM depended on Global Foundries after investing heavily in a long-term mutual relationship. Global Foundries responded by taking IBM's money and benefiting from IBM's knowledge, skill, and assets. Though Global Foundries repeatedly assured IBM that it would meet its commitments, Global Foundries instead, abruptly and without any justification, walked away from IBM while IBM was reliant on Global Foundries. Global Foundries has demonstrably failed to act as a reliable partner and supplier. I mean, that sounds angry for somebody that was just looking for a quick payday. This is like a divorce proceeding. Yeah, they, these that's what it sounds like. It does. Two are not friends. Yeah. Holy cow. She said she'd be cool about the dryer. <laughs> no. The dryer. <laughs> yeah, I, I mean, there's maybe personal experience. Well, there's no law against being a bad partner. Yeah. I mean, if that's how you want to play it, I mean, and in my from what we've seen here, I don't think that's the case, in my opinion. I don't think Global Foundries was a bad partner, but they just made a business decision. Yeah. And IBM uh, did not like it. Yeah, so. I'm sure... I'm sure that they did the cold-hearted, hey, nothing against you. This is just a business decision mm-hmm. because that makes it hurt less. Yeah. No. <laughs> but if IBM dumped a bunch of money into this and then Global Foundry was like, all right, well, forget it. We're not. <laughs> yeah, still a pass. <laughs> I don't yeah. know. Like that's, it's probably very complicated. Agreed. Agreed. Uh, our, fourth, our fourth most popular story this week, smelly nuisance chicken plant blocked. A court has blocked the construction of a Pilgrim's Pride plant in Gadsden, Alabama. The proposed processing plant would render dead chickens and chicken parts into animal feed. The plant has received a lot of, quote, vocal community opposition because the plant will be, quote, a smelly, dangerous nuisance. The plant would be located near homes, schools, and a church and process 120 truckloads of chicken parts daily. So... A judge acknowledged uh, that the community has some concerns, but it's a tricky problem because what's more important, bringing jobs to the area or the rights of the citizens in the community? A trial has been scheduled for later this summer to either uphold the injunction or allow the plan to proceed with construction. Anna, I mean, no one wants to live next to a smelly chicken part plant. It's going to be smelly, folks. It's going to be gross. We know, <laughs> we know that for a fact. Yeah. Um, I think these stories tend to be a little contentious because uh, each side has their points, right? I mean, this area was rocked in 2020 when a Goodyear tire plant that had been there for like 90 years um, closed its doors. And uh, the judge in this case, as you mentioned, acknowledged that the area needs to do something to replace those jobs. But he's stressing that there has to be a balance between um, the needs of the community and not just those who want to work in a plant that's close to their home, right? So. Um, certain food plants have faced opposition from communities in the past, as we've seen, um, with like hog farms and things like that. I mean, there's been a lot of this, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and I think some of these opponents get accused of the not in my backyard mm-hmm. kind of approach. But in this case, the city would actually need to rezone in order to approve the plant. And that's where some of these businesses and homeowners, I think, are getting kind of the thrust of their argument, um, it seems. And the Facebook group that's organizing the opposition to the proposal has 9,000 members and the wow. population of this town is only 34,000. Um, yeah. Yeah. So I mean, yeah, third. yeah, we don't know who those people are. Right. But it speaks to the level of the opposition here. So I don't know. Um, as you said, like there's a trial, the trials in July. Um, so this could change, but for now I'm sure 
some of these people are relieved that it's not moving forward as of the now. Yeah. I've, the worst I've ever smelled was a dog food plant. How about you? Uh, are you asking me what the worst thing I've yeah. ever smelled? No, no, no. Like in terms of plants. I mean, we travel a lot. Uh, I, you know, I grew up in a mill town and, um, the paper mill, when it would be like humid or rainy mm-hmm. outside, you could smell that. Yeah. And, um, at the time I hated it and now it's like nostalgia for oh, me. Oh yeah. Now it reminds me of home. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Jeff, smelly plants. There is a, um, there was a factory growing up in Juneau, Wisconsin mm-hmm. that did yeast. Ooh. So when that was fired up, that was not pleasant. That was, <laughs> that was rough. Yeah. That was not good. Ugh. Yeah. Uh, so what about this rendering plant? Yeah, I mean, it's it's interesting because, it, first of all, you, you see where the town is coming from. And they've got a page on their website, too, dedicated to all the potential benefits, $67 million annually in direct and indirect money that would be funneled into the community, more money for schools, all that good stuff. And like Anna alluded to, that Goodyear plant leaving after 90 years, that left a huge vacuum there. The other side of it, though, when you look at things from Pilgrim's Pride perspective, if you Google this town – and Pilgrim Pride facilities within 50 miles of it, there's about 10 of them. Holy cow. So Pilgrim's Pride is seeing something here, and I think part of it may be the fact that they can, not doing anything, I think, immoral, but it's a lower pay level that they can get away with in this particular area. When you look at other states in the area, Alabama workers for Pilgrim's Pride make a couple thousand dollars less than even right next door in Atlanta, mm-hmm. Tennessee, or if you go further up, I, I Googled Wisconsin, it was less there too. Oh, okay. Um, it's in there too. So I think there's there could be a reason why um, Pilgrim's Pride is looking to sort of shoehorn in another facility in this, this area mm-hmm. because it is more cost effective. And it is a, I mean, let's be honest, these aren't glorified jobs. I mean, these, right. these, are, these are, this is hard work and it's Kind of dirty work, obviously. The folks don't want it, like Anna said, in their backyard. So mm-hmm. I can see where Pilgrim Pride is coming from. I can also see where this community is coming from with the best of intentions. But also, if you're Pilgrim's Pride, do you want to go into a community that's telling you they don't want you there? Mm-hmm. Right, right. That's yeah. why a lot of these plants end up pulling out, I think, after if there's like just years of like yeah. contentious like legal battles and stuff. In the end, a lot of times that is effective in getting them to say, you know what, forget it. Yeah, Pilgrim's not- Pride has been through it in the last couple of years, too. They've got a lot of bad stuff going on, so they probably don't need the drama. Well, <laughs> what I thought about is there's a lot of odor remediation technology mm-hmm. out, out there, uh, stuff that you can put in your HVAC systems, ozone systems like that, that can do a significant amount of odor remediation. Uh, I just did a story on researchers from the Institute of Bioengineering of Catalonia in Barcelona, Spain. They built an olfactory drone prototype to monitor and improve management at water treatment plants. And I kind of joked because if you can figure it out at a water treatment plant, probably should work anywhere. I mean, since our office is right down the road and that breeze <laughs> comes swinging sometimes. Um, but the Institute helped develop the Sniff Drone. It's a drone with an electronic nose made up of 21 different chemical sensors to create odor concentration maps. So basically, it gives you this heat map, smelly map, of your facility, so that way plant managers can take appropriate actions to improve odor management. And I think if companies were willing to invest in some of these new ideas, or maybe even just give them a try, that might help sell the town. But if you're Pilgrim's Pride, do you feel like you have to sell the town? You're offering a, you know, you're coming in saying, we want to be here. We want to open this plant, 100 jobs or whatever. Do you want, I mean, there's probably other places they don't have to do that. So I don't know. I feel like 
what community is not going to be like, you know what, bring the smelly thing here. It's already pretty bad anyways. Okay, but this is an issue because it's close to homes and schools. True. I mean, yeah. If this is five miles out of town, people probably don't care. So just find people that care less instead of trying to find a, a modest solution. I'm, I'm like picturing perspective. I'm just yeah. picturing Pilgrim's Pride with its like collar popped being like, you know who I am? I'm Pilgrim's Pride. <laughs> you don't tell Pilgrim's Pride what to do. <laughs> I make the rules. <laughs> we'll render anywhere. So both of you think the sniff drone's a loser. Do you th- would no, you would a- you if they said sniff drone to you and it was like right by your house, would you be like, well, okay. I build mean, it. Well, we have. We'll see what happens. We have a landfill near our house, and by near, I mean five to ten miles down the road was never an issue. And then a couple of years, they started doing they started doing less burnoffs, mm-hmm. and so the odor was coming into our neighborhood. And I tell you what, anytime they give me any sort of idea of like that remediation, what they're going to do to fix the problem, I'm in because mm-hmm. it is atrocious. But you're already but there. I'm already there. Yeah. yeah. But I mean. If it was, if it seemed like they acknowledged that might be a problem and they were going to take steps A and B to, you know, address it. And, you know, it's not, maybe it could be like a pilot plant uh, or pilot program. And maybe if it works, it'll be something that goes to other communities or other plants could use. I mean, it would help sell me on it, especially Mm -hmm. if I'm in a small town without good job prospects. And this prevent, uh, provides a good job with a potential solution to not make it intolerable for my kids in school. I don't know. It would be. It would be at least. A I good think from fate. the from a if if Pilgrim's Pride says we're going to do this, yes, great idea. I'm saying to say this is what Pilgrim's Pride should do and make that type of investment. I think yeah. that's the tougher <clears throat> sell. I think that's oh. a tougher person to sell it on. Yeah. No. I'm just saying you guys could figure it out. There's. David wants the chicken plant. Pilgrim's Pride. <clears throat> yeah. I will give you his address. Yeah. Bring bring the plants and the sniff drone to the east side of Madison. We'll find you a spot. We'll find you a spot. Real estate here is real cheap right now. <laughs> uh, the third most popular story on our site this week, why Walmart is giving 740,000 workers free smartphones. Walmart has announced plans to provide 740,000 workers with their own smartphones. The Samsung Galaxy X Cover Pro retails for about $500, and Walmart says workers can use them as their personal mobile device. There's a caveat and it's a new app called Me at Walmart. They're not past the whole part where you put the really cool uh, symbol in there. And don't just stick to words or numbers. The app started as a way for employees to track scheduling, and it evolved into something Walmart says will simplify work tasks and help better serve customers. They say Me at Walmart is the first of its kind in the retail industry and will help workers save time and be more efficient. The average wage of a Walmart worker in 2020 was $14.76 per hour. Anna, is this going to be an invasion of privacy or is this going to actually help workers be more efficient? Mm, maybe a little of both. Yeah. Uh, I like how the reader comments went straight to tracking device because, oh, yeah. like, why, would, why wouldn't they? Yeah, um, big brother surveillance state. Yeah, except for that, like, Walmart kind of has, like, a published public history of, like, trying this stuff out. Mm-hmm. Um, like Bloomberg reported in 2019 that Walmart was testing a monitoring device made by a company called Strongarm, and it was described as a biometric harness that was ostensibly designed to track their movements with, I think, ergonomics in mind. Whoa. But Bloomberg said that some sites were actually using Strongarm to track productivity and improve efficiency. Mm. In 2018, Walmart was granted a patent 
that let them listen to in-store audio to ensure workers were properly greeting guests, I believe was what was said. Right. (laughs) So I guess, like, of course, people's minds jump to the theory that Walmart is using these to keep tabs on their workers. On the other hand, there's probably a lot of business benefit to putting your employees on an app while they're at work and also removing any excuse for them to not use it. Um, I mean, let's just hope that they're smart enough to take a lesson from their top competitor, Amazon, who was um, forced to backpedal on some of that driver monitoring tech that they had deployed recently Mm -hmm. because it was making people really angry and uncomfortable. Mm -hmm. So I don't know, like this might stay good PR if they use it responsibly and, and maybe are very straightforward with what's being like collected and utilized from a data standpoint, Mm -hmm. or it could go the other way. I don't know. (laughs) Which way is it going, Jeff? I think it's a great idea. I think it's great. Um, If for no other reason than they're getting a $500 phone, and these are, you know, like you said, the average wage, not super high. So this is a a nice item for them to have. I I couldn't find anywhere if it specified if this was like U.S. workers or if this is globally that they're looking at 740,000 phones. I don't know. I I couldn't see anything. But just to offer perspective, I mean, Walmart employs like two and a half million people around the world and about 1.6 million here in the U.S. So it's not like all of the workforce. And it is selective. You don't have to take the phone if you don't want to. Um, one of the things that I thought was kind of cool is that one of the, in addition to all like the scheduling and the, the worker benefits there, it also has a built-in capability for like a warehouse inventory tool. So like if they need to go and pick mm. stuff, from the the, um, the store floor, go to the back room, bring it out. So, I mean, that just makes things easier, too, if that's on your personal device. Mm-hmm. I think there's also maybe some security issues that could potentially arise from this. We've seen that in the industrial sector where people are bringing in their own devices and downloading apps and using that at work. Mm-hmm. So you kind of would have some – that would be my bigger concerns more than the traceability or monitoring element of it. Yeah. But overall, I think it's a really cool idea. And, I mean, Walmart's doing okay. They made a like, – Fifteen billion dollars in profit last year, so mm. they can afford to do kind of. That's nice a good year. Like they this. can buy a million phones. phones. Yeah, yeah. Um, that's I, actually the the warehouse inventory management thing is really interesting because I didn't think about that. The few times that I've been looking for something in Walmart and couldn't find it, when you ask an associate, what's the first thing they do? They get their phone out and they just search it on the on their app or on the Walmart website to yeah. find where it is. So the other thing I think maybe it would alleviate. I don't know, maybe some of the monitoring things is it is like, would Samsung want to be <laughs> brought into that whole thing too? It's a good point. Um, hopefully they'll be doing a little bit of watchdogging on something like that, but it's not, they could sure say they it's will. not their responsibility too, I guess. Yeah. So. Uh, when you hear something, my point was that when you hear something uh, where they say improve worker productivity without collecting personal data, data, it's weird how whenever you hear, we're not going to collect personal data the first thing you think, we're trained to think, well, of course you are. Mm-hmm. You know, it's like, uh, why would you say that otherwise? Yeah. Um, but as a former retail employee and a former Walmart employee, um, I have to say that anything that could make scheduling easier would be a benefit nearly worth the data mining that happened in the background, even if it wasn't. If they um, tracked your audio, mm-hmm. uh, you would be fired day one. <laughs> That's not true because I was I was front I end customer, I was front end customer service. I I had the David, maroon we've vest. We worked together for how long? Like, yeah, mm-hmm. come on. But in a retail setting, I like I'm a kill him with kindness guy. It's just like, oh yeah, ma'am, you think the watermelon's a little squishy? Well, we'll put it back for you and get you another one. See, why that don't was you, really snarky right there? Yeah, why don't you kill us with kindness? Yeah, uh, you've never once killed me because with kindness. we're way too close. We're way too close. This is for strangers only. But <laughs> strangers only. Think about. 
anytime that you've had those jobs where you need your uh, your Friday night shift covered or you need someone else to cover, like I think if you could do that in the app mm-hmm. where it's like, hey, this person's going to cover for me and we're just going to make that scheduling switch right there. Also, if you've ever put together a schedule for a larger workforce, it is a burden yeah. with some of the automation software out there where you're trying to juggle people and their requests and their vacations. If this makes any of that at all easier, I think it is an incredible benefit. For yeah, yeah, fair it. point. I mean, if, if this is going to do that stuff, then great, yeah. Mm-hmm. And listen to their conversations. Mm-hmm. See, yep. the listening software in the aisle, that's where you might catch me in a rough moment. You right. know, I know, that's but, what I'm saying. No, but yeah. see, when I'm checking people out, but my job at Walmart, I was just, you know, customer service. So, I mean. Do you think this would have helped avoid the birdseed incident that I experienced in college at Chopco where the pallet broke and we had like seriously 50 crates of birdseed <laughs> funneling through the, the warehouse? Oh, it's so I funny to picture that. No, I don't, I don't know that I've ever heard that story. What happened? Well, based so Shopco, kind of a regional retailer here, so I worked in college, and we were always, the college kids would come in at night, and mm-hmm. during the day, a lot of the workers there, they were just throwing stuff up in like the racks to get there because they knew we were the ones going to have to get it down. They didn't have to deal with it. Mm-hmm. Okay. So in this particular incident, we needed to get a bunch of birdseed down. So got up, got, got the forklift out, which I was licensed to drive. <laughs> yes. Got it up there, but there was so, there was so many of these plastic cartons of birdseed just stacked on this old wooden pallet that as soon as we pulled it off the shelf, the pallet just shattered. Oh. Just shattered. And obviously the plastic containers of birdseed were not the highest quality. Shocking, mm, yeah. right? And when they hit the floor from about eight, ten feet, oh my God. Just a, a just a flood of birdseed. Like the worst Explode. possible thing that could I mean, be up there. It was it was loud. I mean, they had to hear it out in the store. Like it was extremely loud because all these plastic things wood breaking. Yeah, it was just a flood. Men. Of, uh, of bird seed. Hopefully, he didn't have a rodent problem in the facility. And they just <laughs> came flying right after that. Yeah. But um, no, that was that's a good time. <laughs> that's Yikes. another podcast. Our jobs before we got in publishing. Uh, Our second most popular story this week: Lordstown Motors warns that it might not stay in business. Lordstown Motors, the apple of Lordstown, Ohio's eye, says it may not be in business in 2022. Lordstown says the $587 million that it, has on ha- that it had on hand as of March 31st isn't enough to start commercial production and begin selling the full-size pickup called the Endurance. In a filing with the SEC, the company said, quote, These conditions raise substantial doubt regarding the abil- our ability to continue as a going concern for a period of at least one year. Now, going concern is a term companies use when noting that outside auditors are questioning their ability to remain in business. The news comes amid a host of other bad news, including the likelihood of cutting production by more than half to only 1,000 vehicles this year and losing up to $380 million in 2021. The company is now looking for new sources of capital, including issuing more equity or borrowing from partners, the government, or financial institutions. Uh, Anna, do you think they're going to find a dance partner? (laughs) I think we can file this under like the least surprising news ever. Mm-hmm. I know we talked last week about how startups were hit particularly hard during the pandemic when venture capital dried up for a time period mm-hmm. and everyone was kind of taking a tentative approach. Meanwhile, companies like Lordstown have no product and zero revenue to carry them through that time. Um, and Lordstown has the unique distinction of trying desperately to find more investors uh, while being sued for defrauding investors. <laughs> 
that's, so the, that's a tricky one. So this is probably what we call in the business circling the drain. I think, I don't know. It's, it's hard enough to get investors in a market where there's no supply for auto production on top of that. Um, Lordstown, as you said, is hemorrhaging money. And they're being sued also for accusations that they made misleading statements about their backlog of orders and their product design. They're also being accused of stealing trade secrets from another electric car company. So it's truly like a hornet's nest. And I will be surprised if Lordstown survives this. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Jeff, sounds like you have the same sentiment. Yeah, this was the, I agreed, the least surprising story ever. Mm-hmm. Um, do you think like, you know, Steve Burns is the president and CEO of Lordstown. Do you think he gets together with like Dyson and the guys at Faraday mm-hmm. and the guys at um, <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, Fisker. Fisker and they're like, like hey, you know what? It's kind of hard to build a truck. What do we yeah. do at Man. this point? In you, know the what everyone was, difficult. you know when everyone was dumping on Musk because he's like, hey, I'm trying my best here. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah it's it's actually pretty hard to yeah. do. Mm. And I mean, you know, you bring up mm-hmm. Musk and Tesla. It took them six years mm-hmm. to develop the Roadster. Mm-hmm. And they sold it for almost a hundred grand, and they were using the Lotus body, so they already had the body. It was everything else. They're mm-hmm. starting from scratch here with Lordstown. Mm-hmm. They wanted to do it in three years, mm-hmm. half the time, and sell it for half as much at about fifty grand for these trucks. Mm-hmm. So, <laughs> Elon Musk, one of the smartest entrepreneurs of our time, regardless of what you think about everything else, took him six years, cost him twice as much. They were going to do it in half the time and cost and half the cost. There should have been some warning signs here. We just. Again, we wanted to drink this Kool-Aid because it was such a great story. Mm-hmm. Electric trucks, former GM facility, plant in Ohio, all this stuff. And as it turned out, it was just a lot harder and a lot more difficult and a lot more obstacles than everybody anticipated. And then when you had the Hindenburg report, the safety issues, the defrauding of investors, um, it was it's just too much. I agree with Anna. I, I just don't see these trucks really going anywhere. Do they, because GM, I believe, had a, significant financial stake in the company. Is this something that you think GM comes and just brings back in? Or do you think it just dies? I think the Lordstown motor mm-hmm. goes away. But because the endurance? The endurance, I don't know. I don't know. It, it kind of depends. They said they're going to start making them this year. Mm-hmm. So if there's something already there and it turns out if it can actually Endure? function, <laughs> it can, I mean, not without being rolled down a hill, it can actually drive. Yeah, you know, I, I think there is something there, especially with all of the publicity around the electric F one fifty that's coming yeah. out. Tesla's coming out with a, with an electric truck. So if there is engineering there that can be salvaged, yeah, GM would be foolish not to use it. Yeah, I mean, Tesla's coming out with like a weird cube shaped El Camino. Um, but how do you really feel about that one? I'm gonna get one. <laughs> the so the endurance actually you talk about is it any good? It, they were gonna sell it for fifty two thousand dollars, and it's already passed two of the U S government's toughest crash tests and you know they said it was going to beat the electric 150 lightning to market and they already have purchase agreements for about 30,000 trucks um we don't yeah. that's part of the the yeah. issue is that their investors don't believe they have said purchase agreements but they no but they said yeah they said it's true yeah i mean um, steve burns was quoting taylor swift songs about <laughs> not being treated correctly i mean how could that not be accurate is well, that a real thing oh yeah He's oh. just gonna shake off, shake it off. All that publicity, <sighs> bad publicity. No, that is an actual. That's a quote, uh, man. Yeah. So he's trying to appeal to the younger millennial buyer. You Maybe. were spinning. <laughs> <laughs> Tom Haverford over here. Good work. Oh man, our most popular story this week. You're gonna make it, Lordstown. Get that endurance out to market. 
Widow receives $222 million after her husband was killed in a plant accident. In June 2018, 45-year-old Jesse Henson was killed while working at the Westar Energy's Jeffrey Energy Center near St. Mary's, Kansas. Henson was on the 14th floor of the power plant investigating a loss of steam with another worker, Damien Burchett. When the elevator door opened on the floor, they were engulfed in superheated steam and sustained fatal burn injuries. The accident was caused by a faulty relief valve inspected and recently built by Team Industries, a Texas-based Westar subcontractor. Team not only identified the faulty release valve, but suspected that it would fail at the coal-fired plant. Still, the company never took the steps to prevent the catastrophe. The jury found Team 90% at fault for the incident, while Westar, now part of Evergy, was 10% responsible and awarded $222 million to Henson's widow. The relatives of Damien Burchett, the co-worker, have filed a separate lawsuit for his death. Anna, this is a, this is a very tough story to... Digest. Yeah, it really was. Um, and Team Industries, as you said, is a third-party maintenance services provider, and they contended while this trial was going on that Jesse Henson, the person who was tragically killed, was mostly responsible. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, they tried to blame him and Westar. Yeah, and Westar. Yeah. Um, so clearly a jury disagreed with that. I find it hard to believe a separate lawsuit filed by the family of the other deceased worker will go in a different direction because, um, you know, it, the the blame assigned to team, I think, specifically was like 90%. Yeah. It? Yeah. Yeah. Um, and you assume that with this extremely high payout that they're factoring in maybe something that was egregious or negligent um, mm-hmm. and, you know, obviously factoring in how horrific these deaths were and how these two men suffered. Mm-hmm. So... I don't know. And, 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 you know, these types of stories, I think, leave a bad taste in your mouth when you think about industrial jobs. And mm-hmm. they sort of suggest that these kind of risks are more commonplace than they are. And mm-hmm. they get really big headlines. And I think they also deter people from working industrial jobs. Um, that's yeah. sort of just like outside of the like the very obvious, horrible result of this. Mm-hmm. It's sort of like a side result, I think, that's a little bit more nebulous than you see when these kind of stories get a lot of press, you know? Well, and uh, recovered it a couple of weeks ago that it is still one of the most, more dangerous jobs out there. Mm-hmm. Um, Jeff, do you see this uh, contributing to the skills shortage? Part of it. And it's also a communication issue. It blows me away. That team said, yeah, you should fix this and then just leaves. Yeah. How, how, how do you have a clear conscience? I understand you're telling them what, the, what needs to be done, but how do you, not follow. I don't know. That just kind of blows me away. How you can just walk away from from knowing the part's going to fail. Yeah, yeah. And it wasn't a might. It wasn't a shouldn't. It was. It will. Yeah. Um. So that's that's the part that that I don't get. We have yeah. all of these tools in place, all this software that's available to us in terms of visibility and documenting everything, and all this historic information, pre- preventative maintenance procedures, and and something like this still tragically happens. Um. The thing that, that just comes to mind is it's we talk about this all the time, but these are dangerous jobs. Mm-hmm. Um, that's that's the reality of it. And mm-hmm. we probably undervalue that sometimes when we look at what these folks are doing every day. Mm-hmm. Other thing it made me think about is when we run content, we run a story like this where something horrible happened. gets a lot of attention. A lot of people look at it. If we ran an article talking mm-hmm. about proper preventative maintenance procedures for valves, yeah, there would be 10 people clicking on that article. Yeah. 
when we run that kind of stuff, it's white noise mm-hmm. because that's what safety has become in a lot of cases. And yeah. it's not just our readers, it's it's everywhere. Mm-hmm. Okay. And that's part of the the issue too. Need to pay attention to more of this stuff because as I've said many times in our meetings internally, it's all the little stuff. It's the blocking and tackling that we have to do. Same thing here. Mm-hmm. You see something's broke, fix it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. Or if you're in a maintenance procedure, don't just ignore all the safety information that's being put out, not just by us, but by all the organizations out there, all of the manufacturers, all the suppliers. Yeah, it's not the most exciting stuff to get through, but it's vitally important to pay attention to. Yeah, it's uh, it's got to be more than, well, that's not going to happen here. Right. Uh, the National Safety Council put out some estimates as to what the total economic costs of work-related deaths and injuries are. The total economic costs in 2019 were valued at $171 billion in the United States. That works out to about $1,100 per worker, more than $1.2 million per death in total economic costs, and $42,000 per medically consulted injury each year. I see this data and figure, again, like the previous Maybe we should be doing more from a safety perspective. I know that we talk about it all the time. But to your point, Jeff, we don't get, when we come out with new products, new safety products, best practices, case studies, they aren't always the most, they're not the most popular. Yeah. Sell them are. Yeah, I mean, so what do you do? <laughs> yeah. You know, same thing when you're, you're the management at these facilities, too. We know from going and talking to these folks, there's safety teams, right. there's safety meetings, there's all this information posted all over the facility about safety. Mm-hmm. Well, if you've only got a, a lower percentage of individuals paying attention and taking that to heart, some of these things are, are more likely potentially to happen. And it's, Anna, the one thing I noticed from this story is that it's not uh, a lot of these accidents are traditionally with lockout tagout problems that we see, mm-hmm. and this just seems like it was a part failure from a team that was, or a team from a team at team that was extremely negligent. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and these guys didn't have a chance; they just opened an elevator door. That was it. Yeah, yeah, just awful. Very awful. Um, let's move on to in case you missed it. Uh, Anna, what's your in case you missed it this week? Okay, so GM has announced that it is expanding its OnStar service. Anyone remember OnStar? Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it was like one of the first digital like roadside assistant um, tools that came out in the late 90s. Mm-hmm. And um, I think it kind of sort of faded into the background for all the other things GM is doing. It's just sort of like that button, right? But you can contact someone if you get into an accident or if you have a safety issue. So it's a kind of digitized like AAA. Mm-hmm. So GM announced like last week, um, that they are now going to offer OnStar for any drivers, not just drivers of GM vehicles. And they made an app for it. And you can do like a trial. And then after that, it's $15 a month to have the app. Mm -hmm. Um, And they acknowledged that they were looking for new revenue streams that were outside of just producing cars and trucks. Um, And I think it's interesting because it points to some sort of, you know, we talk about automotive innovation and it's often around autonomous vehicles, electric vehicles, um, you know, all the new exciting electronics in there. But this is a completely different revenue stream for GM. Um, And they're talking about how they have a lot of money invested in R&D and trying to like develop new ideas for these sort of other customers that can create more recurring revenue for them. Mm -hmm. Um, we saw this a little bit with VW um, a couple months back, and we talked about it on the podcast actually about how um, they were they were saying that that maybe um, the future of automotive is like yeah. on demand features, right? Yeah. So everything is equipped in your vehicle, and then if you use your 
um, I don't know, if you turn ABS down, or something, then yeah. then you get charged just as a one-off. Mm-hmm. Um, and at the time, like I really kind of knocked that idea. I think Jeff, you were on, you liked it. I but liked it. Mm-hmm. I still don't like it. <laughs> but um, but it's an interesting idea that it, it sort of you know they're they're always looking for more of that stuff, like with getting into finance and insurance and all that stuff. Um, you know, certified repair, um, just these. Re- options for adding new revenue streams that are more recurring. Mm. So you kind of wonder what took them so long with OnStar because it's been around for so long. Mm-hmm. Maybe they thought it was more of a benefit to like buying a GM vehicle than it, it yeah. maybe yeah. actually is. Turned out to be, I don't know. Um, so they got a lot of eggs in their basket right now. Um, this is an interesting development, I think, because of some of the supply challenges that are happening right now with cars and trucks and uh, automakers saying like, look, we got to come up with other ways to make money. Yeah, everyone... So- Everyone wants a wants subscription revenue revenue now. Exactly. Yeah. Um, and this I find interesting because while I thought the other um, was too much because it was anything that you used in the car, you were kind of going to get nickel and dimed for mm-hmm. it. This is a simple app that you could purchase, and for using the service, it's you know fifteen dollars a month, and it's something that I always liked to have in the car. Um, for roadside assistance yeah. or whatever you would use it. Or uh, actually, I've seen it used the most to get people out because they've locked themselves in their car. Mm-hmm. Um, what do you think, Jeff? Uh, is this a good idea for GM? I think it's cool, yeah. I don't wonder, are they still going to take it out of cars, like the button and stuff like that? Or are they still going to leave that in? I think you still get it if yeah. you are a GM buyer. Okay. This is just opening it up to if you're not, then you can get it on your phone. Yeah, yeah. I think like five years ago, I would have been like, whatever. Mm-hmm. But having three teenage girls on the road, yeah, this is yeah. something I'd look at. Good point. Um, just for that added step of accountability, safety, all that kind of stuff, because they may not want to tell me or their mom about whatever's going on, mm-hmm. but be able to reach out to somebody and make sure they're okay. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So I think it's a, it's a great idea by GM expanding that out. You've already got all the IT infrastructure in place. It becomes a mobile app. Makes a lot of sense to me. Mm-hmm. Does this already exist with insurance companies? I don't know. Like Because I know that... Certain apps like Progressive have, you know, roadside assistance, stuff like that that you can get right through the app. Mm-hmm. Does this already exist out there? And is they're late to market? I don't know. Well, I know what the, and I can't speak to all of them, but I know like my insurance company has a, an app, but it, it also taps into like what you're doing with your vehicle. So it's monitoring the performance of the vehicle, how safe oh. you're driving. So and people, all that ha- kind people of stuff. Hesita- there are barriers to using that technology. Yeah. yeah. This is all carrot. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, Jeff, what's your in case you missed it this week? So we ran a blog that I thought was pretty cool just because it talked about uh, something we've discussed a lot over the uh, the last couple of, uh, of issues, months, whatever like that. And it was looking at 10 of the worst cyber attacks that have occurred against manufacturers. It went back about 10 years or so. And it was submitted by, um, let me just pull up the author's name here real quick, make sure I say it correctly, um, David Lukic of IDStrong.com. And it was basically a couple of just a short case studies, but it looked at like 10 different companies that we would know, like Foxconn, DuPont, Renault, Nissan, Apple, um, Royal Dutch Shell, Mondelez, all these folks who have had different types of cyber attacks within the last five to 10 years. Some of them went after data. Some Mm -hmm. of them were more ransomware schemes. But it really, what expressed to me is, yes, these big guys get hit. And when they get hit, they can deal with it. But the reality is a lot of mid to small, small to mid-sized manufacturers have the same value within their IT infrastructure in terms of their intellectual property, their secret sauce, whatever they're doing. There's a lot of information that can be gathered there by bad actors. And what he went on to talk about is the fact that a lot of these improvements in cybersecurity, 
they're kind of basic and it's more proactive and getting mm-hmm. out there before something happens. All these companies had to react after the fact. Mm-hmm. And what we need to get the industrial sector, and we've talked about this with infrastructure as well, is to put things in place so they can't get there or at least make it a lot harder. You mm-hmm. know, if we've learned anything from the colonial pipeline hit um, and some other things that have happened recently, um, the whole um, with the DOD getting hacked and stuff like that. Yeah, it's, it's getting out ahead of this. And I thought he had some really good ideas in terms of just having a response team ready, really training your people so they realize a lot of these cybersecurity things are not that complicated. We mm-hmm. talked about the BYOD thing and bringing devices on site. So there's a lot of things that you don't have to invest a ton in terms of your enterprise infrastructure to guard against these attacks. A lot of it's simple. And if you don't, the implications can be enormous. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, and some of these are tens of millions. Some of them are hundreds of millions of dollars yeah. that it cost these companies. And um, uh, you didn't hear about them. No, lot. Mm-hmm. <laughs> no, you're right. Like, uh, I'm sure in the t- in the moment we did, but some of these kind of uh, caught me off guard. Uh, I hadn't heard about them before. Um, Anna, what was your thought on the piece? Yeah, I mean, it made me think like you. What you really don't hear about is yeah. the ones that don't happen, uh, the prevention. Um, and I wondered if. I would want to hear about all that or if yeah. you don't want to know how much it's actually, you know, how, how, how much people are trying yeah. to breach these systems because some of these companies, I know this is like a wake up call for them. And then they make a lot of progress in terms of like, you know, stealing off their business for future attacks. Um, some of them are pretty well equipped, yeah. but we know from data that most are not. Yeah. So it's scary. Well, manufacturing is the third most attacked industry out there. It's really? after financial institutions and insurance. Hmm. Then huh. comes the manufacturing industrial sector. So, is it because it's the most vulnerable? I think it's vulnerable, and there's just so much data out there. Yeah, um, and there's a, the growing use of cloud computers and also or cloud networking, I should say, and also the fact that a lot of bring your own device, smaller, um, more connected information, and it's all centrally housed. Mm-hmm. So, if you're looking to get personal information, proprietary data, it's all kind of in the same spot. Mm-hmm. My in case you missed it this week was Amazon might be helping itself to your bandwidth. If you own an Amazon smart device, it might be sharing your internet connection with your neighbors unless you specifically tell it not to. On Tuesday, the company launched Amazon Sidewalk, a partner or a program that forces users of Echo smart devices and Ring security cameras to automatically share a small portion of your home wireless bandwidth with your neighbors. The idea is to create this mesh network that makes sure lights and smart locks and other gadgets that are outside your house and out of reach of Wi-Fi stay working. But it raises privacy and security concerns, and people are angry because Amazon just turned it on. It's pretty easy to opt out, and I encourage people to check out the article. But I have an Echo. I read the article last night, and I haven't turned it off yet. We're going to just say it's laziness. I plan on it. But... I thought this was an incredible invasion of privacy or just too many of our devices do this. It talks about, we talk about it so many times about IOT and how I don't care if my, I have a smart refrigerator and what it knows about me, Mm -hmm. but some of these things are going to take our data, use them for their own uh, and use them for their own benefit without ever asking us. And we don't really know what the security or privacy concerns are. No, I agree. This is this is too far. I mean, this mm-hmm. this this is intrusive to me. And the fact that it wasn't maybe publicized to greater extent is kind of head scratching. Like you yeah. have to let people know this is going on. Because <laughs> if when you when we first started talking about this, or I first saw the article, I was thinking, well, I've got two fire devices. Mm-hmm. Do I have to worry about that? I mean, that's hooked into my Wi-Fi. Are they 
grabbing something there. I don't know. Yeah. Or using that to, to funnel bandwidth or, or whatever. No, this seems very intrusive. I'd definitely be checking stuff out yeah. and making sure it's turned off or, or whatever you want to say. It's just a couple of clicks on the app, but I just couldn't bring myself to do it last night. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, no, Anna, what do you think? I, I think part of this is also I'm at, I'm at the t- moment where if I have smart devices outside of my personal Wi-Fi network, mm-hmm. I don't necessarily need them to be connected. Well, what they're doing to sell you on this is mm-hmm. to say things like, what if your dog gets lost oh, and yeah, they've the got like a tag? Yeah, yeah that's the and they could connect to someone else's Wi-Fi that they're running past their house and you can find your dog. Um, which, yeah, everyone wants to find the lost dog, man. Mm-hmm. But, but we don't need Amazon to do that. Yeah. Well, it's just sort of, yeah, I feel like they're sort of trying to worm their way in with these yeah. um, anecdotal, yeah. like uh, uh, trying to like, I don't know, ease people's minds by like the the benefits to it and there are, you can't cover up, like you said, some of the potential security concerns and, and just how off-putting it is, like you said, uh, that they just turned it on. Like mm-hmm. that's that's a your Wi-Fi that you're paying for. Yeah. G- get out of here. Like what? Well, and also, yeah, and it's probably uh, making like uh, causing lag by taking, you know, a certain percentage of your bandwidth. And also, yeah, they make the specific reference to if your pets get lost. Mm-hmm. But if they've created this nationwide global mesh network that can find anyone that's tagged at any time. Find my dog, Amazon. Yeah, we all yeah. have that tag because it's all downloaded on an app on our smartphone. And that's for a different story. Anyway, moving on to final thoughts this week. Uh, Jeff, any any final thoughts for us? Um, growing up, or maybe now, mm-hmm. um, did you guys like Big League Chew? Uh, uh, yes, I yeah. did. It was Thank amazing, you. Yeah. right? Awesome. Do they still sell that? Oh, well, yeah. that's where I'm going Oh, okay. because my mom was out shopping or whatever and she saw Big League Chew and she's like, just as a kind of you know, like a funny whatever, mm-hmm. she bought it for me and she brought it over and she's like, here's some Big League Chew. Mm-hmm. So before both, both of our softball games this week, mm-hmm. I chewed some Big League Chew. I totally yeah. noticed that you're chewing gum. I'm like, I, was, I don't know. And, and I, I have not chewed bubble gum in I don't know how long. So putting it in first, it was so sweet. Mm-hmm. Like it mm-hmm. just kind of blew me away. And just chewing on it was like, I'm not enjoying this. Yeah. <laughs> but, I think, you're, I think so. you're supposed to just tuck it into your cheek. At like, in the, like, I did, the, you know, yeah. like when you're a kid, I had the big chaw thing going oh, yeah. here. And like, I just kept breaking pieces off because it was just, it was too much. Yeah. But we wound up on my shoe. We won both games. Oh. So. Mm, the big league chew effect. Yeah. What do I do here? Yeah, mm-hmm. I have to do have I need to keep the big league chew going? <laughs> the whole Bull Durham thing, you know, you don't mess with a streak. You respect yeah. the streak, right? Well, and, I mean, you won the game on Wednesday, so you're, mm. uh, yeah, like so game winning So I got to keep going double. with it. I mean, for that specific Just instance, for the team. Yeah. I have to keep going with yeah. the big league chew. <laughs> you were going to start chewing it at work. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I can already see this I, coming. I'll be addicted. Yeah. I totally noticed that because uh, you were playing left, I was in left center, and I looked over and I'm like, is he chewing? Like, uh, and you're not like a seeds guy, you know? And I'm just like, I don't know that I've ever seen Jeff with gum before, but, uh, yeah. I noticed it. So that was what, sorry, I'll keep it going. Yeah. It's, you, you have keep to, it going. you have to. Also, Big League Chew was like manufactured or created to be like the gateway drug to like dipping, right? I don't know if it was, I don't know. That was just, as a kid, I didn't think same, about it that Baseball, oh, yeah. yeah. Remember how big pack. baseball was in the 80s? Like, it just was like for kids to, I don't think. I yeah, mean, you has, think like Skull was like. No, not Skull. There was Red another. Man. Red Man. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It was the exact same pack size packaging. And it like even was shredded like it. And uh, because Sandlot, Sandlot, like uh, mm-hmm. that was the exact same pack. Uh, threw a dip in. 
hit a roller coaster, big mess. <laughs> Although I never made the transition. I never made the transition. Like yeah, I never got mm-hmm. into tobacco, but no, no. I like uh the whole idea of it was so disgusting that I'm like, no, I really don't get that one. But it's the buzz. That's a pass. Mm-hmm. Apparently it's the sensation of how sweet it is now. That's how we know we're getting older. <laughs> like it's not the yeah. nicotine buzzer one, it's just ooh. Got my sweet tooth. Anna, what's your uh, final thought this week? Oh, well, I got to scrap my final thought and piggyback off that. So when I played Little League um, poorly, uh, <laughs> <laughs> I liked the um, lick-a-stick. Remember that thing that was oh, like yeah. the powder oh. and then you would lick yeah. the... Absolutely. Fun dip. Fun dip. Yeah. That's so gross. Do they still make that? Probably. I'm not in the age of the coronavirus. I'll yeah. tell you what. They don't See, want you licking something, sticking it back in there, I like sharing the stick. that. Those were the, that was like the best part because like the, the powder was kind of sour, but like mm-hmm. the stick was sweet. That's what I actually like better. All right. Well, that's <laughs> what you can have at work then. No, uh, between that and the pixie stick is the reason I have such an investment in my mouth right now. <laughs> because it's like, wait a second. I mean, it's like the next step to mainlining it, right? No, we'll just give them a big pouch of it as a... <laughs> as a um, to dip or like a giant stick that they can just the giant eat. stick. The Remember giant that? Stick. And oh, people yeah. would give that to me when I was like five. Oh yeah, that was. I mean, that was my regular going to a movie. It was popcorn and a giant pixie stick, and then no, I had such an attitude problem afterwards. <laughs> <laughs> um. All right. My final thought this week is I just wanted to say uh, hello and welcome to uh, new subscribers, Travis and Pete. Thanks for reaching out. I really appreciate that. Uh, also, I'm out next week, so Andy Zell is going to be back. Uh, you guys are in for another treat, uh, but I'll be back the following week. Andy week. It's going to be fun. That's right. Zell's incredible insights and snarkiness will bring joy to many. Absolutely. All right. Well, please make sure to like, subscribe, and share the podcast and email the podcast. You can reach any of us at Jeff, Anna, or David at IEN.com with email the podcast in the subject line. You could also do us a favor by subscribing to our newsletters. Make sure you get it in your inbox first. All right, for Jeff and Anna, I'm David Manti, and this has been the Today in Manufacturing podcast. We'll see you next week. Thank you for listening to the Today in Manufacturing podcast.